Well, this is the day that started it all. Today is the most significant day in our Christian faith. And as Easter Sunday, or sometimes called Resurrection Sunday by others, um, it is central. It is important. But before we get to today, I want us to back up a little bit. I want us to back up to Friday, what we call is Good Friday. And we talked about this last week, that it doesn't sound very good when you think about the events of Jesus being tortured and killed and dying. But good can also mean holy. And it is definitely a holy day in our faith. So let's step back to Friday, to the actual crucifixion. Because I think sometimes we move too fast to Easter Sunday, and we have this kind of problem in our American cultures. We don't like depressing things. We don't like sad things. We don't like pain. And so we like to move past it quickly, rather than knowing that sometimes it's in moving through it that we can truly come out on the other side whole and healthy and healed. So let us go back to the crucifixion to kind of dig into some of the finer details of that day to better understand today and why today is truly a celebration and a joyful day. And I want us to kind of pause for a moment at the cross itself to understand who was there. Now, who was there? Obviously, there was Jesus. There were Roman guards. There were soldiers. There were also a a handful of scared disciples. There was a gathering of women, amongst whom was Jesus' very own mother. Talk about grief and sorrow. But there were no Christians there that day. There were no Christians at the cross, at the crucifixion. There was no church. There wasn't even a Bible at that point in our history. So there were no believers when Jesus was crucified. At the cross, yes, there were dozens who had followed him who were brokenhearted, crushed and overwhelmed with sorrow because the best person they had ever known was on that cross. That best person they had ever known, Jesus, had been falsely accused, tried, tortured, mocked, and now executed on a cross. And this had happened because their religious leaders had conspired with their Roman oppressors. So it just layers on the injustice that is going on here at the cross. And as they look at the cross, they are looking at the person that they believed was God, ultimate Messiah. When they looked at Jesus, they thought, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to bring it all together. This is the guy who's going to save us. And yet, now he hangs on a cross. And I expect that they were truly in shock because this is completely unexpected. In fact, just days before Good Friday, they had been celebrating. I bet Jesus' disciples could almost taste victory. Because what we celebrate on Palm Sunday is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus came riding on a donkey celebrated by crowds, and the crowds kept getting bigger and louder 
and celebratory. And it went from religious fervor to political fervor. As they went from excitement over who they thought Jesus was as the Messiah to then, oh, what would be the reality if he is? If he's really the Messiah, he's going to come in like a military leader and crush our enemies. We will finally tear off the yoke of Rome. This is the moment they've been waiting for. This is why they've been following Jesus, right? He's going to proclaim himself king now. And then suddenly, all their dreams are crushed, nailed to that cross with him as he dies. And as they stare at that cross, I wonder how heartbroken they were and how scared they were because crucifixion in the ancient days in the ancient times in the first century was not an efficient means of execution but it was effective because it was meant to terrorize in truly the sense of that word it was meant to keep the people in line because you did not want that to happen to you And you did not want that to happen to people that you loved. Because there are definitely quicker and easier ways to kill people than crucifixion. But when you crucified somebody, the intent was to completely, utterly destroy them. Bodily, spiritually, communally. Because not only would they hang on that cross and die, They would often leave the body up there and allow scavengers, animals, to come pick at the body. And then when they were finally ready to take it down off the cross, they would often throw the body in a dump. And I don't know how you feel about funerals or things like that, but I definitely don't want that for myself or my loved ones, to be discarded like trash, and yet that is what they did. Now, for a price, you could often bribe a Roman soldier for the body. And scripture tells us that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader, and a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was very well known at that time in the city, they actually went above the Roman soldiers to the very governor, Pilate himself, and asked for the body. And Pilate will give them the body, but only after verifying that Jesus is dead. He wants to make sure that this is taken care of. And it's interesting that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they ask for the body because they want to give him a proper funeral. They want to honor him in that way. They want to take him to actually receive the honor that you would do to the dead. Now, they will take his body to a cave that had been kind of recently renovated into a tomb. And this is how you kind of dealt with burial in ancient times. And so they would prepare the body with spices and they would wrap him in linen. And this is the Jewish custom. And this is what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did for Jesus. And then they would seal him in the tomb. You can see this picture behind me. There's a big stone that would have been rolled in front. And the thing is that this tomb was kind of a temporary thing. That actually they would come back, or a family would come back years later, 
take the body, now just the bones, and they would remove the bones and put them in what is called an ossuary or a bone box. This was how they honored their dead. We keep ashes, they kept bones. So this is probably what Nicodemus and Arimath uh, Joseph of Arimathea had hoped to do for Jesus as a way to honor him, as a way to say, we know what has been done to you isn't right. You don't deserve that. See, they were secret followers of Jesus. They had believed, like his disciples, that he was the Messiah. And they were determined to do right by him. Now, with Jesus' death, though, they, much like the disciples, have realized maybe we backed the wrong guy. But he was a good man. He was an honorable man, and he didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve the fate that a common criminal or a rebel would endure. So they prepare the body, put him in the tomb, seal it up, and then they head off to home before sunset to celebrate the Passover, the Sabbath. And where are Jesus' disciples at this time? They are hiding. Hiding because if they could take the leader of the movement, certainly they could do the same to his followers. So there are no believers. There are no followers. Nobody at this moment, including Jesus' mother, believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He couldn't and he wouldn't save himself, how could he save them? This is the reality of Good Friday. That as he dies on that cross, so do their belief that he is the anticipated Messiah. Nobody is left to keep the dream alive or to keep this Jesus movement moving forward. Because why bother? The guy's gone. And the interesting thing to us, I think, is sometimes to realize that the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry was not his teaching. It was definitely an important part, but it was not the centerpiece. Because much of his teaching is actually incredibly impractical. And some of it is even offensive, like, you know, pay your taxes. That's not a great way to start a movement. That's not exciting. Pray for your enemies. Think about the people that hurt you, and now this guy is telling me I need to pray for them? I'll pray something for them. Lust equals adultery. What? Forgive. Forgive regardless of what has been done to you. That's impractical and offensive, all in one. I don't know that it was really his teaching so much and more about him. And the thing is, Jesus didn't ask people to trust his ideas or to follow his instructions so much as he asked them to follow him. That when he is by the seashore with the disciples, that he will invite into ministry with him. He doesn't say, follow my teachings. He says, follow me. Follow me. It was who and what he claimed to be that they gravitated to. And Jesus claimed a lot of things about who he was. 
And some of this is what gets him into trouble. He claimed to be bigger than Moses, that central figure in the Old Testament who gave them the law. So if Jesus is claiming to be bigger than Moses, that means he's bigger than the law. And then Jesus also said that he was greater than the prophets. Wait a minute. The prophets were sent by God. So you're saying you're greater than them. And then Jesus topped it all off by saying he was greater than the temple. This is the ultimate offense. See, the temple represented the whole system of how to get right with God. How could you know that God was on your side? It was through the temple system. So if Jesus is bigger than that, what what does that mean for us? That means the temple no longer has a purpose. So Peter and the guys did not follow Jesus because of his teachings. They followed him because of who they believed him to be who he claimed to be. And on Good Friday, they come to the conclusion that they were wrong. The Holy One of God certainly can't be killed. So that means Jesus cannot be the Holy One of God. So when Jesus dies, the Jesus movement really dies with him on Good Friday. They all unfollowed him. They flee when he is arrested. They keep their distance, and they gathered in the city to decide, what are we going to do now? One, we have to hide because we definitely don't want them coming after us now. They are trying to decide, what do we do next that has nothing to do with this Jesus movement that we have dedicated our lives to for these last few years? Because everyone, including his mother, expected Jesus to do what dead people do. That's stay dead. So on Easter morning, no one is standing outside the tomb waiting for him to walk out. No one's just going, any minute. Any minute now. No. In fact, we read that Mary Magdalene is heading to the tomb not to welcome Jesus with coffee and bagels, but with spices to prepare his body. And yes, I just told you that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did that to prepare his body for burial. But clearly Mary didn't think they did a good enough job, so she's going to go back and redo it. Somewhat like some of you reload the dishwasher, reorganize things after you've asked somebody to clean it up. I think that's a little bit of Mary here. But she has gone back to the tomb, not expecting to find Jesus alive and well, but to find his body so that she can do one last honor for this man that she loved, this teacher that she followed. So on Good Friday, the movement dies. There are no Christians at the cross. So how, how in the world do we get here today? How are we here on this Easter Sunday in 2023 celebrating? How is that possible if this movement died on Good Friday? How do 
we now look at the cross, which was a symbol of someone's destruction, of Roman oppression. Romans used to line roads with crosses of people as a symbol of their power and of that you did not cross them. So how does this cross now become a symbol of hope, of God's beautiful, loving grace? How do we get here? It's because of what happens in that morning, that Easter morning, that's recorded by our gospel writers. Matthew and John were there. Mark got his information from Peter, who was there. Luke investigated and talked to everybody. James, the brother of Jesus, was part of this. And the Apostle Paul, who will come along later, will all write what happened that Easter morning. They tell what happened that morning. We find it in John's Gospel, in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And it tells us that while it was still dark, Mary goes to the tomb. And what she finds there scares her, unsettles her, worries her. And she runs back to the city, to the disciples, to tell them what she has seen because she does not understand it yet. Yet. Because no one, no one expected resurrection. They all expected Jesus to do what dead people do, stay dead. So Mary reports what happens to the disciples. But the men really don't believe her. They're kind of like, again, they don't expect resurrection. They're like, what do you mean the tomb was empty? Are you sure you went to the right one, honey? Did you get lost on the way? You must be confused. We're all heartbroken, Mary. We're all beside ourselves. We have all been crying buckets. Something must be wrong. It's emotional for all of us. That can't be right. But Peter decides, I'll go check it out. I'll go see what it's going on here. So Peter and the other disciple, that is often called the beloved disciple, or as the writer of John's gospel likes to refer to himself as the beloved disciple. I don't know what that says about John, but, but we pretty much assure that it's Peter and John start for the tomb. They're like, we'll go check it out. We'll find out what's really going on. And it tells us that they were running. Now, I imagine that they probably started at a walk. And then as they started to think about it more and all the emotion that they've been through over the last few days, that they quickened their pace and started to, to run. And this is what I love about the beloved disciple as well, is that he records this. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. In the midst of reporting all of this, he's got to make sure this fact gets in there and is known for all time. I'm going to make sure people know I won the foot race, Peter. I beat your slow butt. 
You can't make this up, friends. This is so very human. Now, when they get to the tomb, John stops. He doesn't cross the finish line. He bends over and he looks in the tomb. And when Peter comes along, he goes straight in the tomb. Peter is my bull in the china shop guy. Nothing really stands in his way. He goes in, and what they find, they find the strips of linen that Jesus was wrapped in, which seems strange if you were to take the body. Why would you unwrap it? And what they see is that Mary, Mary wasn't wrong. She didn't get the wrong address. She didn't see things. She didn't get too emotional. She is the very first witness to the resurrection. The tomb is empty. Jesus tells us that later that afternoon, Jesus visits them, the disciples, very much alive. And it is in this moment that the movement is reborn, reignited. And let us remember here, it's not reborn because of what he taught. They didn't re-engage with this mission because of something that they believed. They re-engaged because of what and who they saw. They re-engaged because something happened that morning. Something happened to them. It turns out he was everything he claimed to be and more. I am the resurrection and the life. Which made no sense to them at the time when he says this. I am the resurrection and the life. And they just kind of like, hmm, we'll figure that out out later. It made no sense at the time. And now suddenly it is crystal clear because they are faced with the reality of it. Suddenly all the things that Jesus taught that was offensive, that was impractical, becomes so very real. All these things Jesus said, all these things said about himself, suddenly the dots connect and the picture is clear. And his movement reignites because he is the king. They called him king on Palm Sunday, but they didn't understand what that meant. They didn't understand this was a king who was going to lay down his life for his subjects, not ask his subjects to lay down their lives for him. This is an upside-down kingdom. This is one that makes no sense to us unless we know Jesus. Now they understand, because they understand the resurrection. And see, this is not simply a Bible story, my friends. The resurrection of Jesus is the story. Nothing else makes sense without it. And when our story meets up with it, our lives are changed. The resurrection of Jesus tells us why it all matters, why it all makes sense. And it also solves this incredible personal mystery for us. It solves the mystery of how can you know where you stand with God? How can you know where you stand with God? How does God view you and how does God view your failure? 
not your successes, not the things you put on your resume or your CV. How does God understand you with all your flaws, all your failings? How does he look at you? How does God see you? How does he feel about you? Jesus was the only person who could speak with authority on this, on the topic of how God feels about the human race. And John, the beloved disciple, the one who won that foot race, the one who traveled with Jesus for years, at the end of his life, as he writes his gospel, as he writes the story of God's love, he writes these words. These are quoted so many times. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved, God so loved the world. Not just these people or these people. God so loved the world. That's the whole shebang, y'all. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or some versions put it, shall not be lost. God's love for the people of the world is clear here. Because God did what you do when you love somebody. He gave. And he does it for the whole world, for the love of the whole world. And the thing is, we stop here on this verse when we really should keep going. Because in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, some of you may have grown up in a church or have experienced church folk where you felt condemned or, in fact, may have even condemned you. John, the gospel writer here, would say, I don't know where you got that. I don't know where you got that. I don't know who told you that, but that's the wrong version. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it because of love. Jesus' resurrection made absolutely, or his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion made absolutely no sense until the resurrection. We need the whole story. We need the whole picture. The resurrection is the reason we are here today. The resurrection is why we tell this story again, why we talk about Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. It's because of today that it all makes sense. Because everything up until Easter Sunday wasn't really remarkable, wasn't something you were going to share, wasn't worth repeating. See, many people had been crucified. I told you the Romans liked to line roads with crucified people. They did so with a whole slave revolt. They did this with their enemies to show them that they had been conquered. 
The crucifixion wasn't the point of the story. Crucifixion isn't the most interesting part of our story. It's what comes after. Good Friday makes no sense until you get to Easter morning. It makes everything that Jesus said and did make sense. It makes sense of God's love for the whole world. It makes Jesus a king to follow. Following because, after all, no other king would prepare a table for his enemies. No other king would lay down his glory and take up a cross. No other king would put up with that kind of mockery that he endured on the roads of Jerusalem as he was led to the slaughter. No other king would stand before that governor Pilate and stay silent and not defend himself. No other king is going to pick up his cross and choose to die for you and me. This, this is why Easter is a big deal. This is where it all started. It's at the end of this story that it makes complete sense and is why it's worth repeating, worth telling again and again. Because this is the story of the king who is like no other. Amen.